Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. As always, I am Zaid Wahab, and today we will discuss the boiling over of civil strife within the Caliphate. The three factions we introduced last time will continue to vie for the Ummah leadership, and two of them are about to fight it out in episode 13, The Battle of the Camel. Before we get into our action-packed episode, let's begin with a refresher on who made up the Ummah's three factions. First and foremost, you had the Caliph, Ali bin Abi Talib. His supporters were mainly the people of Medina, early Muslims who lacked tribal prominence, and a small but growing number of partisans who saw something special in the Prophet's cousin, people like Malik al-Ashtar, whose support in particular came with a lot of clout in Kufa. Ali's refusal to play by the old tribal rules despite his own noble lineage and his devotion to the public application of the virtues outlined by his cousin the Prophet really did make him stand out, especially to those who had no love for this tribal system, which at heart was really a dog-eat-dog world. The second faction was the Umayyads, headed by Muawiyah, who had governed an ever-growing Syria for almost 20 years. Since the previous caliph's murder, Muawiyah had received news from many distressed kin in the capital, but the sources focus on articles sent to him by a handmaiden of Na'ila, the last caliph's only wife to have been there with him at the end. From her he received some macabre gifts. The bloodied shirt in which Uthman was killed, and three fingers of hers, which she had lost trying to shield her husband from a sword swing. Muawiyah did not let these brutal mementos go to waste. They were paraded at the various mosques throughout his land, and in their speeches prayer leaders eulogized the lost caliph and stressed to their faithful that bringing his killers to justice was religiously incumbent upon them. Let's now turn to Mecca to meet our third and final faction. It was the home of the Quraysh, and as the pilgrimage had just ended, many were already there, most important of whom was Aisha. Now there are many narrations telling of Aisha's dismay at hearing how Adi had been selected as caliph, and in the classical sources she is widely considered either this Meccan faction's founder or its catalyzer. She publicly lamented the killing of a gentle caliph who had righted his ways after being asked to by the people. She blamed the rebels for their betrayal and Adi for instigating them to their murderous overreach. Aisha had serious clout throughout the Ummah and especially in Mecca. She was one of the Prophet's surviving wives, now branded the mothers of the faithful as nobody was allowed to marry them, and she was the daughter of the Ummah's first caliph. It's worth remembering that her father's quick political maneuvering after the Prophet's death had ensured Quraysh a place at the top of the new tribal hierarchy. Many in Mecca were hoping that a similar transformation could be brought about once again, and it is to Mecca that the ex-governors of Basra and Yemen had gone after hearing of Uthman's demise. Using the money they had taken out of their treasuries, the governors of the Yemen pledged to bankroll any effort to bring Uthman's killers to justice. The third faction was primarily composed of non-Umayyad Qurayshis, though there were still a few Umayyads among them. Back when Marwan's family first strolled into Uthman's capital in episode 10, I mentioned that there was competition among tribes, clans, and then families within clans. Umayyads closely related to Muawiyah's family by blood or marriage generally fled to Syria, 
but others who coveted the leadership of their clan or more, were aware that heading there would only strengthen Muawiyah's claim to supremacy among them. Marwan and Abdullah bin Amir are good examples of the latter, the first keeping close to Uthman's two male children like he did their father, and the second hoping his influence in Basra would be decisive to his faction's victory. Within days of becoming caliph, Ali wrote to Mecca appointing a local leader he trusted as governor, but the people there refused to pledge their allegiance, and one of them is said to have seized the caliph's letter, chewed it up, and spit it out, which is a pretty gross detail considering that they used small dried patches of goat or camel skin as parchment. The Yemeni funding really upgraded what was going on in Mecca from a mass tantrum to a local rebellion. The Meccans understood that Adi had no special love for his tribe, and that his leadership would inevitably entail a sort of social demotion for them. So far, Quraysh had been the preeminent tribe within the caliphate, the natural leaders of its provinces and armies. The sources contain many lines of Quraishi poetry viciously slandering Ali and all those who supported him at this point. The focus the Meccans placed on the Hashemites is quite revealing. Their goal was not simply to avenge Uthman by punishing the rebels. It was to taint Adi with complicity, and then use that as a reason to exclude him and all the other Hashemites from any future consultation over the question of who was to lead the community. Talha and Al-Zubayr were both vying for leadership of this faction, and the role of kingmaker fell to the mother of the faithful Aisha. A war council was convened at her place, and the leading Qurayshis at the time discussed strategy. They rejected a plan to attack Ali in Medina, realizing that they were not strong enough for such a battle, they also rejected the idea of heading to Syria, as doing so would only strengthen Muawiyah's hand. And finally, they settled on Basra, as Abdullah bin Amir assured everyone that he had plenty of loyalists there who had fought under him before and would be happy to do so once again. The plan was then to rally an army from the city, use it to defeat Adi, and convene another council to determine who would become caliph. The Qurayshi elders relied on Aisha to keep them banded together. She had evidently supported her kinsman Talha back when she was egging the rebels on in Medina, but now she preferred Al-Zubayr. Sources, of course, differ on this, but most claim that she now favored Al-Zubayr because his son Abdullah had a special place in her heart. Al-Zubayr's wife was Abu Bakr's daughter, Aisha's sister, making Abdullah her beloved nephew. Abdullah was even given her father's nickname as well and is sometimes referred to as Abu Bakr in our sources, highlighting just how close he was to his mother's side of the family. Recognizing that the coalition they had was a fragile one, however, she never publicly pledged her allegiance to Al-Zubayr. Instead, she would ever so often put her thumb on the scales by asking her nephew to lead everyone in prayer or announce something, you know, little things to help Abdullah project leadership. The rebels left Mecca in either July or August of 656, and they did so in secret so that the caliph wouldn't have the time to stop them before they got a chance to put their plan into action. They picked up more supporters on the way as Aisha would tell all those she came across that she was looking for true believers who would punish the caliph's murderers and return her husband's ummah to its righteous path. I leave it to you to imagine how compelling it would be for an Arab at the time to hear the prophet's widow asking for martial help, and her pleas grew the ranks of her army from about 800 to over 3,000 men. When they arrived in Basra, Adi's governor came out and asked them what they wanted, and the Meccan faction replied that it sought to avenge the loss of Uthman, and afterwards to convene a council to determine who would lead the Ummah. Aisha again addressed the public, leading the people of Basra to disagree with one another about what to do. After all, many of them had already pledged allegiance to Adi, the Prophet's own cousin. 
the governor of Basra, prepared to meet the rebels, the two sides fought a short skirmish the next morning, and then they agreed to a truce to put an end to Muslim-on-Muslim violence. Remember that up until Uthman's murders, Arabs had not spilled each other's blood since Abu Bakr's early wars to reunite the tribes under Islam. There was a lot of hesitation on both sides when it came to breaking this taboo. Despite all its pent-up anger, the Meccan faction couldn't just show open hostility to other Muslims and then claim it was there to unite the caliphate. The truce left the governor in charge of the town, and it allowed the rebels to stay in Basra and use its markets until Ali arrived to resolve the matter peaceably. Now, Ali didn't hear about this mutiny until a few days after it had taken place. The rebels had kept their destination a secret, and so the caliph didn't find out about that until they were almost at Basra. By then, he had put together a small army of about 700 and written to Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, the man he had confirmed as governor of Kufa, asking him to prepare and send reinforcements for any possible battle against the Meccan faction. He planned on meeting the Kufan reinforcements midway between Mecca and Iraq, and from there to march on the rebels and demand their submission. When Abu Musa received the caliph's letter, however, the governor found Ali's request unacceptable, and he refused to put together an army meant for fighting other Muslims. When Ali learned about this non-compliance, he asked his cousin Abdullah ibn Abbas and his stepson Muhammad bin Abi Bakr to go sort things out, giving them a harsh letter addressed to his governor. Their arrival in Kufa made little difference, however, and Abu Musa now went the extra mile and walked around the city, personally telling people that to follow their caliph's orders would be seditious. Just like Aisha's speech in Basra, the governor's proclamations in Kufa kept its armies from uniting behind a single faction. Speaking of Basra, after staying in the city for a night or two, the rebel faction decided it was time to break the truce. Their journey to Basra was made in secret precisely so that they would have the element of surprise and the time to assemble a force capable of doing away with the Hashemite caliph. Waiting around until his army was at their door was decidedly not that. They ambushed the governor while he was leading evening prayers in the mosque, seized him, and took over his fortified palace. The sources make it clear that the rebels really, really wanted to kill him. But since he was a prominent early Muslim, brother of Qais bin Abada, the governor of Egypt, they eventually thought better of it. The punishment for him still sounds pretty awful, though. They yanked out all the hair on his head, including his beard and eyelashes, leaving him bloodied and battered. The fighting over the city that night led to almost a hundred fatalities. One of them was the governor's deputy, a hardcore fan of the caliph, who is said to have had his leg cut off by a rebel, only to beat his aggressor to death with it before succumbing himself. When the Meccans were secure in their control of the town, they released Ali's governor and decided to prepare for a defensive battle, probably so as not to come off as the aggressors. Now all this must have happened shortly before Ali arrived at his original rendezvous point, because he soon met up with his abused and humiliated governor of Basra, who was making his way back home to Medina. Learning of the continued disobedience of Abu Musa, the caliph now asked his eldest son, Al-Hassan, and another close associate, Ammar bin Yasir, to go and make sure an army from Kufa came to support his otherwise meager forces. By this point, Malik al-Ashtar had become an important military advisor to the caliph. He was a major proponent of Ali's during the volatile days when the rebels were first looking for someone to pledge allegiance to. It is probably for this reason that Malik al-Ashtar was repeatedly singled out by the Meccans for curses and accusations of guilt. Without him, the vacuum left by Uthman's murder would probably have been filled by chaos until Quraysh had united around one of its tribal leaders. 
Ammar bin Yasser and Muhammad bin Abu Bakr, another two very influential proponents for Adi, throughout the siege of Medina by the rebels, are also often blamed for Uthman's demise. So there's a clear pattern of blaming Ali's closest supporters for Uthman's death, regardless of how implicated they actually were. One last thing about Malik al-Ashtar. Since it was him who recommended that Adi keep Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, he must have been embarrassed at the governor's lack of support and eager to personally correct the situation. He asked for permission to follow al-Hasan and Ammar to Kufa, reminding the caliph of the considerable influence he had there. Adi allowed him to go after them, and the description of his arrival to Kufa in the sources is almost comic. Abu Musa is said to have been publicly debating al-Hasan and Ammar at the mosque on the virtues of disobeying the caliph, while Malik rounded up some loyal men, stormed the governor's palace, and took it over. The governor hurried back only to be turned away by Malik, who angrily accused him of hypocrisy, but otherwise let him be. This quick reversal of authority proved extremely effective, and an army of six to 7,000 Kufans was promptly assembled and sent to meet Adi east of the city. It was early December when the two armies faced one another outside of Basra. Ali appealed to the city's people and several of its tribes went over to his side, especially those who had been victims of Meccan aggression. The sources are unfortunately silent on the sizes of these armies, but you get the impression that Adi had a numerical advantage, especially after the Basran defections. Given the sizes of Kufa and Basra at the time, the total number of warriors was probably around 15,000, though estimates sometimes rise as high as 40,000. For three days, a pitched tent stood between the two armies, where their leaders would meet to try and resolve the matter without conflict. The sources portray the Basrans acting like they were facing the killers of Uthman, while the Kufans did not take the possibility of being attacked by their Muslim brethren very seriously. The negotiations went nowhere, however, and after a young man whom Ali had ordered to raise a copy of the Qur'an between the armies as an appeal to unity was killed by an arrow, the battle began in earnest. As soon as the fighting started, Ali gained a huge, unforeseen advantage as one of the two main Qurayshi leaders, Al-Zubayr, shocked everyone by withdrawing completely. This was the last thing anyone expected from the battle-hardened Al-Zubayr, presumptive favorite of Aisha, the Meccan faction's kingmaker. There are plenty of conflicting narratives retold in the classical sources about what occurred during the last round of negotiation because Al-Zubayr emerged from the tent seeming distracted and remote to those around him that fateful day. Some sources say he went in search of a friend, others that he just headed towards Medina, but most agree that when he stopped to pray, he was ambushed and killed by some Arabs who had followed him. His killers were from a tribe which had remained neutral during this battle, making it likely that they felt Zubayr's conduct of turning his back on a conflict he had played a large part in instigating had earned him a shameful end. There is, of course, a lot of disagreement on what led al-Zubayr to abandon his faction. I'll spare you the speculation. What makes the most sense to me is that he must have realized he was being used to justify a cynical power grab. Ali no doubt mentioned in the tent how ludicrous it was for the Meccans to charge him with conspiring to get rid of Uthman, when Talha and Aisha were two of the last caliph's most outspoken critics, and two of the Meccans most supportive of the Egyptian rebels during their siege of the capital. Ali, by contrast, had tried to mediate between the caliph and his people, had counseled the rebels not to enter the city, and had never once spoken publicly in support of the rebels after they had returned to lay siege. Furthermore, the Meccans accusing Ali of complicity were making common cause with Marwan, 
whose role in this whole mess was being overlooked by everyone now that a Hashemite was in charge of the Ummah. Anyway, if Ali's arguments really did get through to Al-Zubayr, Talha remained totally unmoved. He commanded the horsemen bravely and seemed to have been doing very well until, and I assure you this is not a Skyrim reference, until he took an arrow to the knee. It must have pierced a major vein or artery as we are told that he bled profusely despite efforts to staunch the wound. He is reported to have asked his medics to leave him to die, telling them that this arrow had been sent by God. Except it had actually been sent by Marwan. Of course, this is contested in the various histories, but it's widely reported, enough so that I'm comfortable repeating it to you. Now, I know they were both of the same faction, but evidently Marwan still blamed Talha for all of his support of the Egyptian rebels, and he is said to have later told one of Uthman's sons that he had taken care of one of his father's killers that day. With both Qurayshi leaders gone, the army's attention turned towards Aisha, sitting upon an armored camel spurring on her supporters from behind, which is where the battle gets its name from. The camel she was on was apparently a beautiful camel, like a real prize. It was presented to her as an expensive gift paid for by the taxes stolen from the Yemeni treasuries by their previous governors. The Basran army rallied around the camel to protect it, and the Kufan army shot volley after volley of arrows and spears towards it. In the fighting, Muhammad, son of Talha, died protecting the camel's halter or face mask, and Abdullah ibn Zubair crossed swords with Madik al-Ashtar, who struck him above the neck and left him for dead. The fighting intensified as the rebel army concentrated itself around Aisha until Ali's calls for someone to hamstring the camel were finally acted upon. After it fell, there was little to fight for, and the caliph sent his stepson to check on Aisha. Muhammad bin Abi Bakr went to his half-sister, helped her off the dead camel, which is said to have resembled a hedgehog at this point thanks to all the projectiles sticking out of its armor, and he took an arrow out of her shoulder. In total, about 3,000 men were killed, many of them from Quraysh. Adi's camp is said to have lost only 500 men. Other estimates put the toll much higher, and although they're less realistic, the exaggerations reflect how severe this battle would remain in Arab memory. Adi gave special treatment to the defeated Basrans, in ways that clearly signaled they were to be considered fellow Muslims. They were pardoned wherever possible, their wounded were treated, and those who fled were not pursued. Furthermore, he forbade his men from taking any war booty or enslaving the wives and children of those who fell in battle. All his warriors received in compensation was a sum of money from the treasury. Aisha headed back to Mecca, accompanied by a host of Basran women. She was especially bereaved at the loss of her nephew until he resurfaced a few weeks later, having survived his duel with Malik al-Ashtar after all. Another detail which the sources don't agree on is what happened to Marwan. He either escaped to Syria immediately after the battle ended, or more likely pledged his allegiance to Ali following their defeat. After all, pretty much everyone who survived pledged their allegiance to the caliph the next day. Some sources say that Ali rejected Marwan's pledge, and others that he accepted it but publicly declared that he expected the Umayyad to break it before long. It's not that important a distinction, because shortly afterwards Marwan did indeed head to Syria, accompanied by other Umayyads like Uthman's sons and Abdullah bin Amir. They would continue their struggle against the Hashemite from there, this time under Muawiyah's banner. The fact that Ali allowed these men to go free when he knew full well that they intended on fighting him does not go unnoticed in the narrations found in the classical sources. 
Many of them praise Ali's actions for embodying the Islamic virtues of patience, tolerance, and faith. As he believed himself to be the true leader of the Muslim Ummah, these men were not his enemies, only wayward subjects confused about the righteous path. Anti-Hashemite accounts paint a different but overall less believable picture. In them the caliph is either slow and incompetent, or idealistic and naive. While a case can be made for describing Ali ibn Abi Talib as uncompromisingly idealistic, narrations that depict the caliph as incompetent are transparently biased, and have survived more as anti-Shia diatribes than credible historical accounts. What I'm trying to say is this. Allowing these men to walk free was bad politics, but it happened anyway because Ali saw the caliph's role as being above politics. He must have realized that they would go over to Muawiyah just as he must have realized that he would have to face the powerful governor of Syria himself. To fulfill his role as leader of the community as he saw it, the caliph had to do more than just force his people to accept him. He had to show them why he was the preordained choice. Stories about early communications between Ali bin Abi Talib and Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan often feel made up. Remember how last time I described an Arab Dahiyya as someone to whom a lot of suspiciously far-sighted words and actions are ascribed? Well, stories about Muawiyah at this stage abound with unlikely cleverness and unsubtle foreshadowing. One of my favorites has Muawiyah trying to stall the caliph by sending Ali a stream of messengers, each bearing a single page. The pages all began with from Muawiyah to Ali and were blank after that. Anti-Hashemite accounts say that Ali waited for months, trying to decipher empty page after empty page while Muawiyah prepared for their coming struggle. That Ali and Muawiyah did not address one another before now does make sense though. Ali had much bigger fish to fry with the rebellion of nearby Mecca involving Aisha and members of the Qurayshi council, who many held to be his tribal equals. It also makes sense that Muawiyah would have preferred to bide his time, building the legitimacy of his claims against the caliph through both tribal and Islamic appeals. Unlike the caliph, he could focus his messaging on the people he had already been ruler of for almost 20 years. Syrian mosques cursed Uthman's killers regularly from their minarets, and the idea that Ali was protecting these murderers was at times implied and that others openly declared. Now, Muawiyah already had plenty of supporters before the arrival of the remnants of the Meccan faction. One important one was the Umayyad poet, Al-Walid bin Uqba, whom you might remember was Uthman's half-brother and had ruled Kufa as governor until he was removed for his drunken excesses then publicly whipped by Ali bin Abi Talib for those same offenses. A more unlikely ally was Amr ibn al-As. This other Dahiyya had been feuding with Uthman since the previous caliph had first replaced him as governor of Egypt early in his reign. After that, Amr returned to Mecca, where he is said to have played an important part in encouraging the Egyptian unrest against both the caliph and Abdullah bin Abi Sarh, his replacement as governor. His disagreements with Uthman continued up until the beginning of the infamous siege of Medina, at which point Amr left for his vast estate in Palestine. And now that the Umayyads were out to get anyone who was tied to their kin's murder, he wrote to Muawiyah describing the perpetrators of the unspeakably tragic act as the basis of the rabble and so on. His main point was that he was on Muawiyah's side, especially if the Umayyad wanted to retake Egypt and needed someone who would govern it well in his favor. Hint, hint. In any case, Muawiyah's mobilization towards confronting the caliph must have been clear to Ali. 
and the lack of communication between the two is not suspicious in the least. Following his acceptance of pledges in Basra, Ali appointed his cousin Abdullah ibn Abbas as governor and made his way to Kufa, which he would now make his de facto center of command while he faced up to the opposition coming from Syria. He refused to stay in the governor's palace in Kufa, preferring instead to stay with his sister's son, who lived in a simple hut in the city. His move there happened within a month of the Battle of the Camel and took place either in late December or early January of 657. In the speech he gave upon his arrival, he reprimanded those who had refused to support him in his time of need and exhorted them to behave more justly in the future. He asked the men Uthman had put in charge of Azerbaijan and Hamadan to the east to take pledges for him from their armies and then to join him back in Kufa. These men were more like commanders than governors since there were no sizable Arab settlements in their regions. They mainly commanded an army and they were responsible for ensuring that the tributes from the various conquered settled peoples came through every year with minimal resistance. The governor slash commander of Azerbaijan was a tribal lord of a Yemeni tribe of the Kinda. His name is Al-Ash'ath ibn Qais and he will be very influential in the next few episodes. But for now, let's talk about the other guy, who is too unimportant to deserve a name. The governor of Hamadan told Ali that he thought he would make a good messenger to Muawiyah. He argued that his friendship and standing with the Syrian governor made his opinion the most likely to sway the Umayyad into pledging allegiance to Ali. Malik al-Ashtar is reported to have been distrustful of this man, but Ali trusted him maybe because the Prophet had once used him to successfully negotiate with a major tribal leader decades ago. Ali now wrote a letter to Muawiyah, telling him of what had taken place in Medina, how Talha and Al-Zubayr had pledged and broken their words, and their last stands in Basra. He wrote that the Meccan faction sought to control successorship by limiting the consultation to their ranks, but that true consultation required the opinions of all of those who were Muhammad's earliest supporters, both the Ansar and the Muhajirun. These men had overwhelmingly pledged to him, and Ali was now inviting Muawiyah to join them. Sources disagree on how long Muawiyah kept Ali's messenger waiting. It was either a few hours or a few weeks. After consulting some close allies, especially the other Dahiya, Amr ibn al-As, the two Duhat decided it was best to impress upon the man how devastated Muawiyah was at the loss of his kin and how heavily the burden of dishonor hung upon him. They convinced the messenger that everyone in Syria blamed Ali either for Uthman's death or for harboring his killers and shielding them from justice. I'm skipping over this part quickly because of all the conflicting narratives, but it seems like Amr ibn al-As played a key role in ensuring the transformation of public opinion in Syria from being simply pro-Muawiyah to being solidly anti-Ali. This was no easy task, and it required subterfuge, bribe, fabrications, and much skillfully wrought propaganda. When it was all said and done, Ali's messenger returned to him, and everyone's fears were confirmed. There was going to be another battle. Ali's victory in Basra meant that Muawiyah would no longer benefit from simply biding his time. Now that Ali was in nearby Kufa, the governor of Syria was at a serious disadvantage as he risked being flanked from both Iraq to his east and Egypt to his west. With Amr's help, Muawiyah was now being proclaimed defender of the faith in Syria and encouraged to fight the usurper Ali who had shamed the Ummah with his unbridled lust for power. Join me next time as we cover this budding conflict on the Caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power.